last few weeks called, uh, like Jesus, the model that he's called us to be. And so over the last several weeks, we've been taking a look at the life of Jesus Christ to understand the, the priorities of his life, to understand the way he lived. And the things we've been talking about are his dependence upon the Holy Spirit. His fervent prayer life, the, the centrality of the Word of God in his life, and how he knew the Word and he obeyed the Word. We've been, we're going to be talking about his obedience and how everything he did in his life glorified the Father. And then at the final week of this series, we're going to look at, at the way he lived in intentional relationships with others in order to further God's kingdom. And so that's what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And this series is really about spiritual disciplines. This series is really about the heart and the habits of Jesus that you and I can take into our lives and begin to apply and live out in our lives. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about two habits uh, that, that were prevalent in Jesus' life. The habit of reading God's Word and knowing God's Word and the habit of prayer. And over the last two weeks, that's what we've been diving into. But today, I want to shift gears just a little bit and begin to talk about Jesus' heart. And to begin to talk specifically about His heart of obedience. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes we start hearing obedience, we start getting a little nervous. Start getting a little, palms start sweating, start, start thinking, oh my gosh, what are we going to talk about when it comes to obedience? And the reason we begin to get freaked out when we start talking about obedience, because if you were like me, you grew up in a more legalistic environment. And so obedience meant following a list of rules. It meant following these do's and don'ts. And so oftentimes what, we, what ends up happening is we begin to think through and think, man, obedience, that must mean, uh, that must mean Eric's going to give us a list of things we have to do. And what I want us to see today is that Jesus, in his obedience, because he lived out perfect obedience to God. There was not one moment in his life that Jesus disobeyed God. Not one. He obeyed God in every single thing that he did. That's something none of us can say. Matter of fact, most of us haven't even obeyed God in the things He told us to do today. Why? Because we're fallen, we're sinful. And so today, here's what I want, the disclaimer is, this is not a message about legalism. It's not a message about doing certain things and not doing other things. This is a message about the heart of Jesus being obedient to the Father. As a matter of fact, Paul described Jesus' obedience in this way. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul said that he was obedient even to the point of death. Now think about that. God sent Jesus knowing that he would go to the cross. And everything Jesus did in his life pointed directly to the cross. And he was obedient even to, uh, even to death on the cross. And so what Jesus shows us is he models for us what, our, what obedience looks like. He models for us the importance of, of, of obedience in our faith. The spiritual discipline of obedience is often one of the hardest ones. And we're going we're gonna, to um, take a look at the end of this sermon that Jesus made, uh, preached, uh, that called, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 through 7. And in that passage, in those three chapters of the book of Matthew, Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's starting to preach and teach and he is giving this message to his disciples. As a matter of fact, uh, I, one of the passages we often miss, because always, and I know I've missed it in the past, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, Seeing the crowds, verse 1 of chapter 5, he went up on the mountain, 
And he sat down, and his disciples came to him. And then it says, then he opened up his mouth to speak. So here's what's happening. Jesus is talking. We've got to understand the audience. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to people that were interested in following him. He's not talking to irreligious people. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to people that are seeking him. He's talking to people that want to hear the truth. And so Matthew 5-7 through records this sermon that Jesus preached. Now we're not going to go through the entire sermon today, but what I do want to do is focus on the end of the sermon in just a few moments. Because this is a sermon that Jesus preached. These are his own words. These are the exact words that Jesus spoke. And he's preaching and he's teaching to, his, to the crowd and to his disciples. He's teaching people that are interested in learning about God. And he starts with these beatitudes. He lists eight beatitudes. And over the next few chapters, the rest of this sermon, what he actually does is he takes the concepts and the principles of those eight beatitudes and he unpacks them and shows us how to live them out in our own lives. That's really what he's doing throughout the rest of the thing. These are eight principles, eight things. These, these, and he goes, it's always the blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the, uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those persecuted for righteousness' sake, blessed are those who others revile and persecute. So he goes through all these eight beatitudes, and then the rest of the chapter, the rest of the sermon, he's unpacking what those mean and what those say, and and he's showing us how we actually go and live this out. But then, at the end of his sermon, at the end of this message, Jesus has a call to action, which all great sermons should have, right? Here's what you need to go and do. Not just what you need to believe, not just what you need to know, but what you actually need to do. We talk about this all the time that we're to actually do what the Word of God says, right? We're not just to be hearers only, we're to be doers. We're called to put it into action. And so Jesus, at the end of his sermon, he gives us this call to action, and he reminds us. He reminds us that it's not enough just to know the truth. We actually have to obey the truth. It's not enough for us to just have head knowledge of what God's Word says. We are to live it out throughout our daily lives. And at the end of his sermon, Jesus is reminding us and and sums up, he says, everything I've taught, everything you just heard in this message on the Sermon on the Mount, boils down and comes down to this idea that the reason I'm teaching it is so that you would obey it. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 13 of chapter 7. He says, enter by the narrow gate. And we've we've heard this. This is some of the most... Uh, recognized passages in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in, in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the narrow gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is, uh, 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 that's the wide gate. And then he says, for the other gate is narrow, and that way is hard, and it leads to life. And those who find it are few. Verse 15 Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter 
the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's getting back to this idea of obedience. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 24, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the winds came and the, and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against the house and it fell and great was, a, was the fall of it. And then verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were what? Astonished, amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Now, at the end of this pass, at the end of this sermon, Jesus gives four either-or scenarios, and which was very common. Part of the reason Matthew includes the fact that he he uh, he the people were amazed because he didn't teach like his like his, like the 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 other people that taught them because like the scribes, but he taught with authority. And actually, he actually did teach very similar to the way the scribes would have taught. They often use contrasting points to. To, to make their point, contrasting images. And that's exactly what Jesus does. But the difference is Jesus taught with this authority that they hadn't heard before. He wasn't just teaching, uh, he wasn't just teaching about God. He was God teaching them uh, personally. And so he's, when, when it says that he, they were amazed at his words, at his teaching, they were amazed because of the authority he had. And at the end, he uses these four either-or contrasts. He says there's two paths. There's two trees, there's two voices, there's two houses. And each one of those are illustrating basically the same thing. When you look at these passages, the reason I wanted to read all of them together, they're actually just saying the same thing, just in different ways. And what they're saying is there is no compromise in the kingdom of God. There's no compromise in the kingdom of God. You and I are either all in or we're all out. He doesn't say, hey, I want half your life. I want part of your life. Hey, if you'll just give me 80 or 90% of your life. He goes, no, I want all of you. The whole Sermon on the Mount is, a, is really boils down to only Jesus and all of you. That's it. Only Jesus and all of you. That's ultimately what it boils down to. And so he's, what he's saying through those four either-or statements is there is no middle ground in the kingdom of God. Which are hard words, right? It's hard for us to hear Jesus say this because oftentimes we, we like to find the middle ground. Like we, talk, we teach our kids, like you, sometimes you need to find the middle ground with your friends. Sometimes you need to find the area of compromise. We do it at work, don't we? We try to seek to find middle ground. But what Jesus is saying is that when it comes to my kingdom, when it comes to following me, there is no middle ground. You are either obeying me or you're not obeying me. You're either doing my will or you're not doing my will. And remember, the context of this, he's speaking to his disciples. And part of the problem that he's showing us is that, that those, the past, the trees, the voices, the houses, they all look similar. They all look the same on the outside. 
Like, I don't think the path that Jesus talks about when he says there's a wide path and a narrow path, I don't think the wide path is, is one where people are just rocking out highway to hell. Here we go. Let's do this. Right? I think these are people that are earnestly thinking they are following the path to God. Now, sure, on the, on the wide path, there are people that are, that, are, that, are, that are atheists and irreligious, but I believe that what Jesus is showing is that the path, the sign post at each of these paths, the narrow and the wide one, both say, here's how you get to heaven. Here's how you get into the kingdom of God. Here's how you, how, how you get to know God. See, these paths, they look very similar. Many think the, path, the wide path is reserved for atheists, wicked, people that don't go to church, etc. And the narrow path, those, those are the churchgoers. Like, we're all on the narrow path, right? Because you showed up on Super Bowl Sunday to come to church. We're all Christians. We're all good people. That's the, that's the narrow path. But what Jesus is saying is that both paths, both paths have signs pointing to heaven. In other words, he's saying that the wide path this wide path is filled with religious people that are leading to their lives toward destruction. People that outwardly look like they're following God, even outwardly look like they're following Jesus, and yet they're leading, their lives are leading towards destruction. So you're saying, listen, the narrow path, the wide path, yes, there are people that are far from God that are on that wide path, but there's also religious people seeking God that think they're on the narrow path. These are hard words. This idea of obedience is, is tough for this reason. Why? Because there are people that have said, that, well, I've prayed a prayer. I've gone through some rituals. I've done some things. I look religious, but on the outside, their hearts are far from God. Their hearts are far from him. And the same is true of the trees and the voices in the houses. I mean, look, he say, what does he talk about? He says the tree, both have fruit, right? Both are bearing fruit. It's not until you crack open the fruit that you realize that one is good and one is bad. You ever gone to the grocery store and picked up a bad watermelon or a bad cantaloupe or something that you couldn't see the inside of? And you open it up, you're like, oh, man. Like, that's what he's saying. He's like, when you went to the store, did it look bad when you walked up to it? No, it looked right. And what he's saying is that there are people that think they're following Christ, they think they're doing what he wants them to do, and yet the fruit, when you crack it open, is rotten, it's diseased. On the outside, it looks good, but on the inside, it's worthless. Same is true of the voices. Look what he says about the false prophets. He says the false prophets, these people that are speaking this false gospel, these people that are preaching and teaching, and they're, and they're in it, he says they, they, they come to you in sheep's clothing. So they look like sheep. You can't distinguish the outside, but on the inside, what does he call them? He says they're ravenous wolves. But on the outside, they look the same and think about the houses the houses probably looked identical built maybe even by the same material but yet the difference was the foundation that each house was built upon and so at the end of this sermon it begs the question how do i know i'm on the right path right like how, how do i know i'm on the right path how do i know i'm bearing good fruit how do i know that i'm building my life on the foundation that god wants me to build it on 
This message is not designed to scare us. It's designed to help us understand and grasp what Jesus is saying at the end of the sermon. And so what is, what is, thankfully, Jesus answers us. Look back at verse 21 in chapter 7. Because the answers is exactly how we can know whether we're on the right path, whether we're bearing good fruit, or whether we're building our lives on the right foundation. Look at verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the answer. He's saying, listen, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the one that's on the right path. That's the one that's bearing right fruit. That's the one that's building their life on the firm foundation. But I want you to notice in here what, it, what, it's, what these people are coming to Jesus and saying. They're saying, Lord, Lord, which is a, which when, when, you, when they put words like that in Scripture together, Lord, Lord, it's a sign of affection. These are people who thought they were doing those things, casting out demons, he, um, uh, prophesying, uh, doing mighty works. They thought they were doing it because of their affection for the, for the Lord. When it says, Lord, Lord, that's what it means. You think about when Jesus calls to, says to Mary, oh, Mary, Mary, right? What was it? It was a sign of affection, like stop all your worrying and come to me. That's what, that's what this is talking about. Lord, Lord. And so what is the will of the Father? Because we have to ask that question, right? Like, okay, if, if doing God's will, if doing the will of God is, is the way I'm on the right path, the way I'm in bearing right fruit and building on the right foundation, what is the will of the Father? Here's the reality. I think oftentimes, I think we make a mystery out of God's will. I think we overcomplicate God's will all the time. I know I've done it in my own life. Like, God, should I do this? Should I, should I go this direction? Should I buy this house? Should I do this thing? Should I, should I make this decision? And we're constantly asking, God, am I in your will? Is this your will or not? And, and does this decision, if I make this decision, am I going to be out of God's will and then I'm going to be on the wrong path and bearing wrong fruit and building on a wrong foundation? And so oftentimes we do that and we think, oh man, what is God's will? Listen, the will of God is discovered as we become acquainted with God. As we become more acquainted with God, as we begin to learn His ways and become His friend, the will of God becomes more and more clear to us. More and more clear to us. See, God's will for every single one of us in this room, His universal will for all of us, is that you and I would be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's for every single one of us in this room. His will is that you would be more like Jesus. Paul put it this way. He said, He has predestined us to be conformed into the image of His Son. Like before the beginning of time, His plan was for you and I to be conformed, to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And so we know that's His will for us. We know what He's calling us to do to be more and more like Jesus. So the decisions we make and the things that we do should be driving us to become more and more like Jesus. And if they're driving us to become more and more like Jesus, you're in God's will. If they're taking us away from being more and more like Jesus, you're out of God's will. 
Now, that's the universal will. Now, there's specific wills, but you, don't, we, you and I cannot discover God's specific will for our lives until we begin to fulfill His universal will for our lives. We can't expect Him to say, here's what I personally want you to do until you're doing what He's already told us to do. Right? I think about it this way. Nicole and I will be married in March for 22 years. And, you know, after 22 years of marriage, I've gotten to know her really intimately. And I know what she likes and what she doesn't like. I know the things that bring her joy and the things that don't bring her joy. And how have I, how have I discovered that? By spending time with her. By getting to know her. By learning her. And as our friendship has grown, I know the things that, that will guide, the, the decisions that I make that will make her happy. The decisions that I make that will please her. The ones that she will be appro- that will, uh, she'll, be, she'll approve of. Right? The same thing is true spiritually. The more intimate we get with God, the more we learn His Word, the more we pray with Him, the more we become acquainted with Him, that inward fellowship with God gives us an inward knowledge of the ways of God. That's the way His will often works. Here's another thing that's incredibly important to remember. That God's will is never contrary to God's Word. God's will never contradicts His Word. Never. So when people ask me, Eric, is it it God's will for me to date this person? Well, are they a Christian? Well, no, but I really like him. Like, he's really hot. Like, no. If he's not a follower of Jesus, you don't date him. Why? Because God's Word says, do not be unequally yoked. I mean, we do this all the time, though, don't we? So we come to them and say, God, I want to seek your will, and I want to know your will, so is it God's will for me to have this career or have this job? And you're like, I don't think God matters that much. Here's what he does care about, though, and what he's made very clear in his word, that whatever you do, whether in work or in deed, do it all to the glory of God. So you say, if I take this job, can I glorify God in my work? The answer is yes, then take the job. See, we overcomplicate it so much. And we think, oh my gosh, we, if, I, if I work at this company versus this company, then I'm going to be out of... No. God says, can you carry the gospel where you live, work, and play? Yes. Okay, then do it. Can you glorify me in the work that you do? Yes. Then do it. That's part of God's will for us. But see, here's the reality. And what happens is, legalism begins to, 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 to form up and, 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 and stems oftentimes from the spiritual discipline of obedience. Because we take God's word out of context and we say, well, well, this is what you should do and shouldn't do. And legalism begins to form. And, and thankfully what Jesus says, because he goes on and continues in verse 24 to show us how, so first of all, it's about obeying the will of God. And then Jesus makes it very clear that the will of God is discovered through the Word of God. Look at verse 24. Everyone who hears these, what? Words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. See, obedience to God's Word, obedience to His Word is the true test of our faith in Christ. That's the way we measure up. Are we obeying God's Word? 
The test is not us being able to say, Lord, Lord. It's not being able to do religious activity. It's not being able to learn religious vocabulary, maybe memorize a few Bible verses and sing some religious songs. No, it's our ability to obey God's Word. That's the test of our faith. See, oftentimes, I know even in my own life, because remember, Jesus is talking to His disciples. He knows that there's going to be times that, that yes, this is the application of this passage is is the path to heaven and the path to hell, the interpretation. But I think there's an application to this even as followers of Christ. There's an application where we can say, okay, as his disciples, there are times where I would rather perform religious duties than obey, than truly obey God. Anybody ever been there? I know I have. Like if I just go through these motions, I can kind of mask what's going down deep in my heart. Like I can harbor anger against someone as long as I act like I love them on the outside. I mean, none of y'all, but but we do that, don't we? We absolutely do that. I know I do that. Like, if I can just go through these motions, if I can just do these, I'd rather perform religious duties than truly obey God. doesn't mean I've lost my salvation. It just means I need God's forgiveness. But, here, but there, is an, there is an aspect of this, though, that, I, that, I, that does concern me, especially in the South. And what I mean by that is this. I think we've created over the years a church culture that says just make this one-time decision. Pray this prayer. Walk this aisle and you'll go to heaven. But what Jesus is showing us is that, is that no, it's, it's not about Jesus being your Savior and getting a get-out-of-hell-free card. It is about Him being your Lord and surrendering all that you have to Him. All of Jesus and all of you. See, I think we can get in this, this idea that, man, oh, well, yeah, I can, Jesus can be my Savior. But I don't have to surrender Him as Lord. I don't really have to give up all of my life to Him. Yes. Yes, you do. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How many of you like denying yourselves? No, none of us like denying ourselves. I don't like denying myself. I want what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. But here's what obeying God looks like. It means doing what he says, when he says, how he says it. That's denying ourselves. That's an act of obedience. Jesus put it this way in John 14, verse 15. He says, if you... Love me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will do what I say. See, obedience to the word of God and the will of God is proof of our love for him. It shows us that we love him. It gives us assurance that we are his. John is saying, listen, if you truly love Christ, you are going to obey his commandments. A true follower of Jesus a heart that's really been converted, a heart that is truly following after Him, is a heart that is inclined towards obedience. Notice I said the word inclined towards obedience. Because the reality is every single one of us in this room are going to disobey. That's why throughout Scripture, even, even John wrote that if you sin, when you sin, if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sin. In other words, He's assuming that you and I are going to disobey, we're going to sin. And that's why I say a heart inclined 
towards obedience is evidence, is the hope that we have that we are true followers of Christ. doesn't mean you always have to obey because you're not. That's where grace comes in. That's where mercy comes in. But if our heart is inclined toward obedience, Jesus is saying, you, and, and he's saying we have assurance that we are his children. Now, one of the marks of spiritual maturity is when you and I begin and start obeying God out of love. Remember when we were kids? I don't know about you, but I, I remember when I was a child. I, I, I would often obey my parents because I had to. Right? Because what would happen if I didn't obey my parents? I'd get a spanking. So I learned pretty quick that I need to obey in order to avoid the spanking. That's the way our, our kids begin to learn, right? They, they, they realize that, okay, I have to obey to avoid punishment. But as I grew older, I realized that there's actually rewards to obeying my parents. Like when I got my driver's license, I realized if I came home before curfew, the curfew oftentimes got extended when I asked it to be. Why? Because they could trust me with obeying the earlier curfew. And so then, so what happens, we, we begin obeying because we have to. Then we shift to obeying because there's rewards to it. But here's the ultimately what God's goal for each and every one of us is, as his children is to obey because we get to. Not because we have to, but because we get to. That's his goal, that every single one of us would, would not obey because we have to, but obey because we get to. That's what mature Christians, that's what spiritual maturity looks like. It looks like listening to God's word and obey it simply because we love him. So the question comes, where do we begin? Like, where do, how do we actually go and live this out? What does this look like in our lives? How do we go and begin to obey what God is telling us to obey? Remember the context of Matthew 7. It is at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He had just preached an entire message on what it looks like to live within the kingdom of God. He just showed us what kingdom living looks like. And then he says, now I want you to obey it. I want you to go and do what it says. And so here, let's just look at some of the things he tells us to do. You can flip there with me, but just, I'm just going to hit a few of them in, in, uh, in beginning in Matthew 5. He says that you and I are to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we're to be merciful, to be peacemakers, to be pure in heart, to be meek, to be humble, to mourn with those who mourn, to be, be poor in spirit. Then he goes on to say, you are the light and salt of the earth. That's another thing he tells us to do. You're to light the world with the light of God. You are to be salt in this world. You're to, and, and then he goes on to talk about our anger. Anybody ever have anger issues? He talks about it and says, listen, it's not enough that you, you just don't murder anybody. Don't even harbor murder in your heart. Don't even har harbor anger in your heart. Talks about our lust. He says, it's not, if you've heard that it says, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her heart. So what is he doing? He's getting to the heart of obedience, but he doesn't stop there. He talks about divorce and he talks about oaths. He's saying your yes should be yes and your no should be no. He talks about retaliation. Like I don't know about you, but if somebody hurts me, I want an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. I want to go all Old Testament on them. <laughs> but what does Jesus say? Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Now you know the context of that, right? Roman uh, soldiers would often ask Jewish people to carry their 
equipment for a mile. And by law, that was all they were required to do was carry it for a mile. And what Jesus is saying, no, you carry it too. You go the extra mile. But he doesn't stop there. I mean, this is, this is all he's saying. That's just the first chapter. At the end of the first chapter, he says, love your enemies. Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it? We're to love our enemies. We're to love people that are different than us. We're to love our neighbor that's, that's different than us, that, is, that has a different sexual orientation or has a different lifestyle or has a different political party. We're to love them. That's what Jesus is saying, but he doesn't stop. He says, give to the needy. Oh my gosh, he's starting talking about our giving. Then he gives, talks about prayer. And then he talks about fasting. He talks about us, we're to store up treasure in heaven. We're not to be anxious. Uh-oh. We talked about this morning, about worrying. We get anxious. We begin to worry. And he says, no, I want you to cast all those cares upon me. Do not be anxious. But what does it say? Seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Oh, and then he talks about judging others. Judge not that you not be judged. Take the, plank, take the, the, the speck out of your brother's eye before you pull the plank out of yours. These are all things Jesus is saying. Ask and it will be given. Then he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them the golden rule. Now you're going, whoop, Eric, that is a lot to remember. I couldn't write them all down. Here, thankfully, listen to this. Thankfully, Jesus summed it up even simpler than that. Thankfully, he said, listen, here's what I want you to do. When, the, when they came to him and they said, what is the greatest commandment? If we're to obey his commands, that's what he just told us, right? We're to obey his commands and his will never contradicts his commands. His will never contradicts his words. And so when they came to Jesus, the Pharisees, and they were trying to trap him and they said, what is the greatest commandment we can do? What did he say? You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Only Jesus. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself, all of you. Like we can remember that, can't we? Love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love God. And he says, love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's God's word and God's will for you and I. That should be the filter we make every decision in obedience to Christ. Am I loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And am I loving my neighbor as myself? See, it's, not about, it's not about following a list of laws. It's about a lifestyle of love. That's the obedience he's calling, to, calling us to. Not a list of laws and do's and don'ts, but a lifestyle of love. Then he gives us the great commission and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you, as you love God and as you love others, you are to go and to make disciples. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. What has he commanded us? To love God and to love others. He's tried to make it as simple as it possibly can. Simple to understand and talk about, but not simplistic to put into practice in our lives, is it? And we can all walk out of here and grasp it. We can all understand it. But yet applying it, that's where the challenge comes. That's why obedience to God's word and God's will is so important. And that's why Jesus ends this, this sermon that he gave with that challenge. Now I want to close out with this passage, 1 John chapter 2. And here's what he says. 
This is John writing who walked with Jesus. Now he's old, he's in his older age, he's toward the end of his life. That's why he calls them my little children, because they're his children in the faith. Look what he says. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. <laughs> I love this next part. Because I'm like, if he'd have stopped there, I'd have been in trouble. <laughs> but if anyone does sin, okay, whew, feel better now. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And, we, and by this, we know that we have come to know Him. So again, going back to what we asked at the very beginning of the message, how do we know if I'm on the right path? How do, I know, how do I know if I'm bearing right fruit? How do I know I'm building on the right foundation? He says, this is, what, this is what we write. We may know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth. The truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And I love verse 7. It's not, not going to be on the screen, but he says, Beloved, I'm writing, this to you. I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. What is that old commandment we've had from the beginning? To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, I love the fact that what it is John concludes is he's, He's saying the exact same thing Jesus said, but he's adding an element of the gospel. He's writing this after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he adds this element of the gospel, and the gospel is this, that you and I do not have the ability to obey God in and of ourselves. We simply don't. God knew that you and I would disobey him, that we would sin, that we would be far from him, that we would naturally put ourselves on a wide path, put ourselves, and we would automatically bear bad fruit and build our lives on the sand. And so what does he do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, in order to die on the cross for our sins, for our disobedience. And three days later, he rises from the grave. And as he rises from the grave, he proves that everything he said about being the Messiah is true and accurate. And he says, all who will put their faith, their trust in me, will be my children. But then he does something amazing. He actually gives the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead, he gives to you and I so that we will have that same power, that same spirit living within us so that we too can obey Christ. See, we don't do it on our own. We do it through his power, his strength. And so that confession of Jesus, you are my Savior, you are the one who saves me, and you are the, my Lord, you are the one I desperately need. And upon that genuine confession, His Spirit empowers us to fulfill the words that Christ has spoken to us so that we can love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. So who's on the narrow path? Those whose lives are walking with Jesus. What's a tree that bears good fruit? One that's rooted in Jesus. What's the house that stands? The house that is founded on Jesus. Only Jesus and all of you. That's what obedience looks like. Let's pray.
Only Jesus. Father, that is a tough, tough thing because so often I want only me. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it and how I want to do it. And yet you've called me to obedience. And through the Apostle John, you said that you, these things were written that we wouldn't sin, but when we do sin, we've got an advocate. And Jesus, I'm thankful that you are my advocate. Because through your death and your burial and your resurrection, my sins can be forgiven. And Father, this morning, we just want to ask that you help us to obey what you've called us to do, what you've commanded us to do, to do your will. And we know your will. You made it clear. We're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbors as ourselves. And make disciples of all nations. But Father, I know in my own life, selfishness and and pride and all these other things get in the way. But Father, I pray that you would forgive us of those things. And help us to focus on the, on the things that you've called us to do. And that is obeying your word and following your will. And that we would put in this practice the spiritual discipline of obedience. And just with heads bowed and eyes closed, just as you continue to process and think, if there's anyone in here this morning that's your first step of obedience is actually surrendering your life to Jesus. Perhaps you came in this morning thinking you were on the right path, bearing the right fruit and building on the right foundation. But God's been speaking to your heart and saying, no, listen. You haven't. You've been like the people that will stand before the Lord and they will say, depart from me for I never knew you. And if that's you this morning, we begin our faith journey with a simple confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And a belief that God raised him from the dead. And that's this morning, if that's you, you can simply pray, Jesus, I desperately need you. My sin has separated me from you. And I surrender my life to you because you are my Savior and my Lord. And I want to obey and do what you want me to do. And listen, Scripture says if you pray something along those lines and just in an act of faith, believe that, that God says you, He saved you. And if that's you, then you, you are now one of His children and you get to follow Him because you love Him. You get to obey Him because you love Him. Some of us here this morning, your, first, your next step of obedience, you've already given your life to Christ, but you've never been baptized. And Scripture teaches that the first act of obedience as a follower of Jesus is to go public with their faith. And some of you here this morning, you've been hiding your faith. You've been not sharing it with anybody. You've been holding it in, and God is saying, listen, I want you to go public, and that first public profession is baptism. And I just encourage you to step out and obey. Why? Because we love Him. Not because you have to, but because you get to. So Jesus, help us to obey in whatever you're calling us to do. Whatever next step you're laying on our hearts right now. 
whether it's surrendering our lives to you or being baptized or loving our neighbor or, or sharing our faith with someone that you placed on our heart, whatever it is, God, I pray that you would help us to be obedient because that is what you ask of us. In Jesus' name, amen.